Hello and welcome to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a short filmmaker and a writer for the Geek Show, Byline Times, Horrified and We Are Cults. And I've been joined this week by... Hi. Oh, you want me to say my name? Sorry. <laughs> right. I'm Ben. Uh, I am the. I'm just a, a guy. I can't. I, I do some reviews for geeks for the Geek Show. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I don't really do much. An occasional podcast guest. There you go. Yes. That's a nice career, isn't it? Occasional podcast guests. Okay. I've, I've thought about setting up my own and then I get incredible imposter syndrome. And then I, I, so I record it, I edit it, and then I'm like, yeah, nobody's ever going to see it or hear this ever. <laughs> so oh. it's kind of like, so maybe one day, but I'm like, does the internet need another middle aged white guy's opinion on film? Probably not. Yeah, uh, that, that's true. I was the last one before the drawbridge closed. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm there on the other side of the of the moat, going, "Let me in." There's crocodiles in here. <laughs> uh, but we have come this week to talk about a thing that uh, late last year um, we, Rob, uh, our geek show head honcho, put it out via our Twitter that uh, we were looking for new pop screen episodes and we were looking for some new co-hosts this is your first time on the show isn't Mm -hmm. it yeah yep yep uh and you suggested world gone wild which was not a film i was familiar with at all i'm sorry (laughs) 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 it was like films with pop stars and i was like well i really like this one now you've got to remember as well my part of my name on twitter is trash king even though I kind of mainly review sort of like Japanese and East Asian cinema on the Geek Show, um, I, I do have this other love of, of trash cinema. Uh, big believer in um, the films of Lloyd Kaufman have as much value as the films of Stanley Kubrick, for instance. It's sort of like in a different kind of way. I mean, I'm not comparing. Well, no, actually, I am comparing Toxic. Yeah, you are directly comparing. <laughs> comparing the two. But they kind of serve different purposes. It's not a competition. It is they all. Yeah. If I've had a bad day, I'm not watching Full Metal Jackets. I'm watching the Toxic Avenger or I'm watching Class of Newcomb High because they cheer me up. And so they yeah. serve a purpose within cinema. But I would quite happily then go and watch um, some Bong Joon-ho or Akira Kurosawa, whatever it may be, right afterwards. So, yeah, it, it's kind of where um, – what that was. So, yeah, so this this is um, – That's very this is one of those trash. Yeah, the, the, this is one of those trash holes. I got a trash hole. Um, one of these – I was just falling into this hole of trash and I tend to go through these different spurts and different areas. And I was just, and this came up as post-apocalyptic trash. And I was like, this sounds amazing. How have I not seen this before? And this is going back a few years. Mm. And as the minute Adamant turned up, I'm like, Oh, Oh, okay. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I, I was going to say this is the first time we've dealt with Adamant on this podcast, but in fact, it's not. I was reminded that he turns up very briefly in uh, Derek Jarman's Jubilee, mm-hmm. 
which we've done in a, in the first year of the podcast. But it, it is the first one that feels like an adamant movie in a way that that film definitely does not. But this is, I don't know if you're a, a listener to Mark Kermode's yes. show. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember when, I think it was when he was reviewing the Entourage movie, which he was very famously not a fan of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said uh, that the movie that they're making, the movie within the movie in Entourage that everyone's talking about as if it's going to be like a guaranteed smash, he said it looks like the sort of thing Adamant used to star in. And I, I remember thinking, I am not familiar with the, the concept of an Adamant movie as like a subgenre, but he was probably thinking of something like this, right? I'm guessing so, it's because this is quite unique, and, and it's definitely coming out of that uh, that narcotic haze of the eighties. Allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, of course, I, I have no proof of this, but it, it's definitely coming in. So, like, this was made with uh, dreams, aspirations, and a ton of cocaine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it does have a sort of druggy element to it, albeit in a very different generation of uh, of drug culture because of Bruce Dern's character. <laughs> and this is it. The 80s still had this love letter to because it was the... Uh... The boomers kind of coming mm. into their own at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, it, and there was still a love affair with the Vietnam War. There was still a love affair with those kind of the hippies and things like that because that's what the youth culture was. So it it, it is really strange. It's, it's a bit like you could argue that it's Gen X moving into millennials now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I am fascinated with the way that nostalgia cycles. Mm. traditionally move and you know when you go back to particularly in the mid 80s particularly around the time this will have been conceived and written you have i think two truisms about the 60s the first is that any rock star who started out with the 60s produced some shocking music in the 80s really awful even boy who's you know my personal number one had a bad 80s there is a caveat to that one and that being alice cooper who arguably got better in the 80s after he came off the drugs and the drink. What, did Cooper start out in the 60s? Because I always <laughs> he thought... He did, 1968, oh, Alice, okay. the Alice Cooper band. Um, ah. oh, pretty, oh, his first album was... Yeah, it was like 68. He was part of that Detroit thing with the MC5, in the Stooges. All that right. Kind of the Alice Cooper band was very much part of that. But no, it, it's a lot of his early stuff. I'm a big Alice Cooper fan, if you haven't guessed. Um, is yeah, no, he did, a lot of that early stuff was really, really good. And then he kind of went off, Kilties, the drugs kind of took over. Then he got clean and it was just, he brought in every pop songwriter he could. And yeah. hence why we had hits like Poison and things like that. You know, so it's kind of, there is definitely a layer of dairy lead to it all after that. But it's also, it's just got that epic 80s sound that, you know, it's when Dockham was doing Nightmare on Elm Street 3, you know, and things like that. So it's like... Well, the other thing I was going to say about 60s artists in the 80s is that they produced generally terrible music and they also generally had massive hits. I think Neil Young was the only person who went so wayward that his audience ran away. And that's that's Neil Young for you. Um, 
But yeah, there there was, as you say, this first wave of boomer nostalgia. And so it's not surprising Mm. to see a movie set in, the the movie made in the late 80s that posits that what will save humanity after the apocalypse is basically hippies quoting from House of the Rising Sun. Basically, basically. But not just any hippie, Bruce Dern. Uh, the the ultra hippie in many ways, yeah. <laughs> they, they only could have got uh, any work with um, oh one of the Fonda. Uh, oh, not, Peter Fonda. He's Peter Fonda. There yeah, you know, I don't know his name is. But yeah, it, they, they could have only gone there with Dennis Hopper or Peter Fonda. Dennis Hopper probably would have done this as well. <laughs> yeah. <he's... laughs> That's true. Yeah, but D- Dennis Hopper again was completely cleaned up by this point in the eighties. So maybe he—I don't know what Bruce Dern's personal drug regimen was at any stage in his career. But th- this feels method acted, I would say. Yeah, it, it's honestly that this—he, I mean, I, w- I was going to kind of come onto it later, but Bruce Dern doesn't even remember making this film. <laughs> Reading up on it, he's sort of like apparently he was asked about it at uh, a con one time or a QA, and he's like, Yeah, there were certain things that we were doing in the 80s that I just don't remember. <laughs> not remember at all. I remember you saying that to me before I watched it, and my initial assumption was, Ah, right. So it's going to be one of those things where you come in, you do a day's filming, you've done your cameo, and you never remember when the film flicks. No, he's in basically every no, scene. He, he is like one of the ma- he is on the poster. He is in. He is one <laughs> of the major characters of the film. It's like there's no dodge in this one. He is going to be in it. But it's really strange, and I know we'll kind of get into into the minutiae of it in a bit. But it's. Um, you can tell by the look of all the other actors' faces, they have no clue what he's going to say next. He, <laughs> yeah. he is on improv centric. He's on his own plan. In fact, you know what? I think he's in a different film. He feels like he's in something that's a bit more in line with, you know, a, a boy and his dog or something like that. A, a more hip, cynical kind of take on yeah. the apocalypse. Whereas this is the Reagan years. You know, you can go to some nasty places. Hollywood films are still pretty tough in a lot of ways compared to the average mm-hmm. blockbuster now. But there's also an assumption there'll be a mostly all-American hero who sorts everything out by the end. So we get Michael Parra instead. Indeed, yes. Oh, I love Michael No, I'm not going to hear a bad word said against him. I wasn't planning. He's not an actor, I must admit. I have strong uh, opinions on because this is this is what I'm kind of dancing around. I'm in enemy territory here. There are some people who love the 80s and you just want to live in the 80s all their life. And then there's me. I can't stand the whole decade. Ah, fair enough. So yeah, I, I feel hated on because that was my teen years right there. <laughs> so it's kind of well, it's, it's like... one of those things that I have a pet theory that people love. Pe- people become obsessed with two eras. There's the even mm. when you were a teenager because you were a teenager, uh, and then there's the even directly before you were born because that's kind of the lost continent. Yeah, you know, well, that's what you the one. And certainly what you get influenced by, by your parents and things like that. Yes. I was a teen, sort of like late 80s, early 90s. So I was 16, like when uh, the whole grunge thing kicked off. Yeah. So that, that's kind of my area. So I've got this real cynical kind of view to it. But when you went to the video store, it was all 
uh, Rambo 3. So it was all even the bad sequels. You didn't even get them the first time around, the good ones. You know? Yeah. So it was like um, Jason goes to hell and all that kind of thing. So it was already kind of like, yeah, we've given up on these things. And then it was sometimes <laughs> on videotape and Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And so, yeah, it was a really weird time. On the one hand, you had all these this really wonderful but cynical cinema mm. and that you had also these throwaway tr- i mean ticks ticks is a great movie I think 1993 that talking about a film that kind of missed its boat a creature yeah. feature with um oh the guy who was in the fresh prince of bel-air and i've forgotten all the names even the character names i've got to uh, say there is literally so... one person i know who was in the fresh prince of yeah. bel-air and i don't carlton, think you it carlton him. there you go right him. He's in. Right. He's playing a bad guy, and he's and it's like no, <laughs> no, no, no. And it's got Seth Green in it as well, and it is literally about ticks, uh, and it's got um, um, Clint Howard in it as well. Not Clint Howard. Oh, what's his name? Um, yeah, no, the brother of Ron Howard. Clint yeah, Howard I was going to say, of yeah, course, yeah. it's got Clint Howard in. How could it not? <laughs> <laughs> and he's great, and he, that his is a cameo, but it's kind of got that eighties feel. It, yes, it was made in it was released in nineteen ninety three, but it felt like an eighties movie. And it's that whole bleed over between the two generations. Sorry, yeah, I've come sidetracked a little bit, but it is yeah that eighties thing. There, there is something about it, but also I have a, a big affinity to the seventies as well because I was born in the seventies, mm. grew up in it. So, uh, so man, I was I was there for the auteur kind of thing. Yeah, the the seventies are are the one that I feel aggrieved to miss out on. That's where my TV comes from. I love the nineties. I love the seventies. The eighties. Damn those eighties. Yeah, just <laughs> maddeningly separating the two good ones. <laughs> yeah. But hey, you mentioned uh, Carlton from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air being an unlikely choice of villain. How do you think Adamant racks up on the unlikely villain-ometer? There was a thing that Roger Corman said years ago about one of his films where he said, never let the monster be shorter than your leading lady. And that is something (laughs) that definitely Adamant suffers from in this film. Yes, yeah, that's very true. I knew that this was going to be something when the opening credits, which are very good, by the way, Mm, uh, I'm a sucker for a really good opening credits sequence, Uh, but the opening credits end with, and Adam and as Derek. Yeah, I mean, they've done him no favours there by giving him a villain name of Derek Abernathy. No. <laughs> it's like, he said, I mean, he sounds like a preacher man, fair play. Like yeah. Derek Abernathy from the Deep South, and he and he's there, and it, it fits in well with the character they're trying, trying to portray, and it's the first time I've seen a villain arrive by helicopter quite like that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like... Okay, that that's an original. In 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 the script, it said villain arrives by helicopter, and it was kind of like, okay, I like what you did there. Yeah, I like what you did there. But yeah, as a villain, it kind it kind of gives the impression of um, Flash Gordon, nineteen eighties Flash Gordon. Mm. You have got Crichton. Is it Crichton? The the guy in the mask who gets thrown. 
Adamant kind of has that feel to him. He's like he's, he's not the head honcho, but he's a yeah. bit creeping. You always think there's somebody above him. So mm. he's part of a chapter of this religious cult, whatever it is. Mm. But yeah, no, it, it's when, when he's not intimidating, and that's the problem. Do you think it's just occurred to me because this is sort of Adam, well after Adam and the Ants broke up, yeah. uh, after really Adam Ant's solo career sort of fizzled out unjustly quickly, I would say. Um, I really like Goody Two Shoes. I think it's a great song. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, I had that on 7-inch, so I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I always love when it comes up in Hot Fuzz. I think that's a great needle yeah. drop, and I love the song. Uh, but do you think that he was really going for a serious acting career here? Ooh, I, I, he was definitely looking to change gears and certainly having that duality of pop singer and uh, film actor. But then you, you get this a lot with those, especially going back into the 80s. I mean, Cher kind of went through it a lot more successfully, one might say. Mm. Um but where they kind of want off, Lady Gaga's going through it right now, is where they're kind of exploring other creative ideas. So it could have been just kind of that avenue he wasn't seeing necessarily that I would now want to be an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's more he was being given roles. He was definitely searching for it. He was telling his agent to go out and do it. If somebody had then turned around and said, right, do you want to make an album? Here's a million pounds. You'd be like, yeah, I'm going to have to make an album now. So he was kind of following where the work was. So yeah. Speak. But serious acting, I think in his head he was. Um, talent-wise? Well, it's, it's sort of... It's not so much a talent-wise thing, although, yeah, I mean, he, he, he isn't... Uh, he's no Olivier, is he? Um, but what I was thinking was that a film that was perhaps more consciously tongue-in-cheek about having... Um, pop star in the um, in the movie would find some way to work that into his villain persona. He's a cult leader. You know, every pop star is kind of a cult leader. Is there some way we can play with that? Can we have him deliver a sermon? Can we have him sing even? But it feels like the film closes itself off to a lot of those possibilities. And I can't decide whether that's because adamant didn't want people to be reminded that he was a pop star or whether maybe you know the film just isn't alert enough to these possibilities i don't know and i think it could be a bit of both Mm. to be honest because i think because there are definitely parts there where it was set up and he was ready he could you could have put him singing a song singing a sermon and it Mm. would have fit in quite perfectly and he would have been highlighting actually he can perform whether you think he's a great singer or not is another matter but he was in the right place to perform and they kind of they hijacked that with an action beat or with um an interruption from another member of uh, member of the cast so yeah so I i think it could be a little bit of both there but also as well this it it's such an odd film as well because in essence it's um <laughs> it's not seven samurai. It's more like five and a half samurai. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, they haven't got the budget for seven samurai, uh, or a bug's life, depending on which generation you come from. Um, so it, it's kind. Of, it, 
it doesn't quite have the because it knows it's setting itself on a classic template that's been done to death at this point and so i don't think it had the awareness to do that it was more like right here's a movie let's get it filmed we've got a four million budget which even at that stage wasn't huge mm. i mean it was still a big but i mean right you say four million pound now people go oh that's a lo- low budget film and it's like Jesus. What world am I living in? I can, make you, <laughs> I can make you six features for that and still have enough for dinner afterwards. And it's, yeah, so it, it's kind of one of those films where it's very much, let's get it in, let's get it made, let's get it out. And as you say, Adam and might have turned around. In fact, you know, really strangely is, I could have imagined Adam and in like the gunslinger's role. Or in mm. the uh, the explosives role, I didn't see him as the main bad guy. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, uh, Julius Carey, who did uh, the the explosive nitro, I mean, mm. I, I love him. Anyway, have, have you ever seen the Last Dragon? I never have. No. Oh, mate, honestly, it was made by Barry Gordy of Motown fame, <laughs> and it 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 is wonderful it, it's an homage to kung fu and i suppose black exploitation in a way but also like 80s pop like because it's uh got um oh what was the name the prince's girlfriend uh is it chastity oh uh, yeah uh, i i I'm just distracted by thinking, you know, I've I've never had a situation vanity, where I've had a pull. vanity, not chastity. There we go. Vanity, yeah, definitely not chastity. <laughs> no, definitely um, not chastity. What am I thinking? Uh, I, I'm just thinking it's never been the case where we've had someone on for their first co-hosting session and we have worked out what they're doing in the second one so quickly. Because <laughs> if there is a kung fu movie made by Berry Gordy, of course. We're doing that. Oh, and it has to, and you have to. It is a great movie. And but you see, the guy who plays Nitro in World Gone Wild plays uh, Show Nuff in The Last Dragon, and he is one of the iconic 80s villains of genre cinema. So it's a from beeline cinema. I mean, he's got the classic line, kiss my converse, and it's like, kiss my <laughs> converse. He is, honestly, he is chewing scenery from the beginning of that movie. But he's great, and he, but he fits that bad guy, and I would like to have seen him as the villain in this film. Mm. All right, maybe I'm being influenced by The Last Dragon there. But Adam and I can kind of see, they kind of wanted, oh, we want someone to get down with the kids by being boomer or older executives going, that Adam man, he's popular, isn't he? Let's get him in. Yeah. And it's the classic thing that we've we've covered this happening a thousand and one times on this podcast where the the life cycle of a pop star and the development process of an average film do not always match up perfectly. No that by the time someone's big enough to, as you say, get on the radar of those older film executives, normally they've passed over into being considered indefensibly naff by actual kids. Don't call Adam naff. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was defending kids what two shoes. And... Actually, I say that, I think I was cool for about 10 minutes in 1992. <laughs> 
because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was I was the only one who had like Nirvana's first album or something like that. It was like one of those. Um, but yeah, no. So you kind of get the impression with this is that they've approached Adamant and said, right, what part do you want to play? Mm. And of course, Adamant being edgy and things that was like, I want to be the villain. What's his name? Derek. <laughs> well, that said, I still want to be the villain. Well, we'll come to the name later. We'll do it. Oh, by the way, here's some drugs. Okay, thank you very much. Can we still call you Derek? Yeah, whatever. I don't care. Uh, this is all allegedly. There's no proof of any of this went on. But yeah, it, it's... I want to be sued. We're, we're talking about drugs as a sort of cultural influence on 80s Hollywood here. That yeah. Even if you were not partaking, there's just a massive cloud of cocaine that hovers like smog over the whole city that was caused when I think David Crosby sneezed once. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> you just can't escape it. It's like the dirt bomb of cocaine everywhere. <laughs> it's like this big dirt bomb went off in Hollywood and it was like, whoa, 80s, here we are. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but there is one thing about Derek that I find more fascinating uh, than than a man named Derek should be. Um, <laughs> but surname Abernathy. <laughs> Abernathy is good. No complaints Abernathy's about Abernathy. That's, that sounds like a villain surname right there. That's got a sort of like a, a, the baddie in a season arc of true blood feel to it, I think. That's the kind of surname that is. <laughs> um, but th- there's the whole matter of what influenced him because this is, I mean, this is nothing if not a collection of post-apocalyptic tropes. So of course it does the last books surviving out of the, after the apocalypse. And it turns out that Derek has got his ideas from a book about Charles Manson. That was not the original book, wasn't it? No, I believe not. Um, Oh, you've thrown that one at me now. I'm trying to remember what it because I was only watching it last night. Yeah, if you can pick that one up. Yeah, no, you kind of caught me out with that one. Oh, in the original script, it was going to be Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. That's right. Yes, I knew it was something to do with Scientology. And I was kind of like, what was it? Which one was it? And it was, yes, it was L. Ron Hubbard. They had a real big problem with it. (laughs) As you would. As you would, to be fair. But yeah. Yeah, Battlefield Earth is all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, it, it feels weird to remember those days when Scientology was just untouchable. Like, even on a very minor scale, there was a an Alan Moore comic, um, part of the America's Best Comics line he did, hmm. which was about Jack Parsons, the occultist and rocket scientist, who was famously done very dirty by a young L. Ron Hubbard. And DC, who bought out America's Best Comics, just pulled that without question. Uh, because you yeah. just cannot, you just could not at that point say anything bad about L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, but we can now, when I'm going to. He was a hilarious, fat faced fraud who made up a religion and devoted most of his life to palling around on a big boat with a lot of young boys pretending yeah. he was in the Navy, which I think is a, a bad look for a religionous homophobic as Scientology is. <laughs> I was going to say, he sued nearly as many people as Harlan Ellison, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you stole the Terminator from me. No, we didn't. It was just you mentioned robot once in your story. <laughs> that was it. it's, it's not the same. It's not the same. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. No, it, it was. I, I do remember that now. As soon as you said it, I was kind of. It was eating away at me but yeah yeah so but the charles manson again it kind of taps into that nostalgia i was talking about earlier of sort of like the boomers in their teens is like oh yeah no he was the big bad and he was seen as the big bad i mean Mm. that even resonates today you watch something like the mind hunter and things like that charlie manson was the name that hung over that show yeah for the longest time um so it's it's still there as an influence but yeah it's uh it does lend um, in a certain symmetry, doesn't it? It's like yeah. the film starts to feel like it's absolving the hippies now because Manson was somewhat unfairly, I think, you know, blamed as as the kind of the, the terrible end point of where hippiedom leads you. And now we're mm-hmm. going to have this movie where Bruce Dern, who, as we've said, is the ultra-hippie, kills the future Charles Manson, gets his own back on Manson. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it kind of, they write that wrong in history, you know, very much the same way Inglorious Bastards does with uh, with Hitler. Oh, oh sorry, spoiler, spoiler. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, Rambo too, which, where there's, there is literally that line, do we get to win this time? It's American <laughs> yeah. cinema of the 80s is about nothing if not refighting old battles. Oh, it was. It was like, can we can we, can we revise history here? <laughs> it's like, we, we don't want this anymore. But no, as well, and especially the way Bruce Dunn's character is seen as the Oracle. He, he is the all-powerful or he never gets phased by when Derek appears in his helicopter. Mm. Uh, he's taking people out with hubcaps on a stick. It's kind of like... <laughs> he is the uber hippie. And, and even when they go to the city in search of the uh, the samurai, uh, for want of a better phrase, he's he is all-knowing. Whatever, you know, it was um, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart. Yes, yes. star of the apple. Yes, and well, I see. I know her from Night of the Comet. You see, so that's probably better, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, Night, Night of the Comet. I was going to say, I always have to like issue a caveat when I mention the Apple because one of my all-time favourite films is the achingly tender Iranian neo-realist drama, The Apple, by Samira Makhmulbaf. We're not talking about that, The Apple here. <laughs> We no, we're talking about canon films the apple yes. yeah. we're, we're talking about golden globus kind of going mental with that with their budgets <laughs> hi slice alone can you make an arm wrestling movie kind of yes yeah. we are talking the apple which teaches us that it's a natural 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 desire to meet an actual 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 vampire feel it every day myself yes um no but she i mean probably most will probably remember her certainly of, of, of my generation and our generation is the last starfighter. She was kind of the love interest in that. She was also in Weekend at Bernie's. Um, but yeah, no, she's one of those people. She was, she was one of those faces of the eighties. Yeah. Easily. And she's in this and she's, she's doing her best. Bless her with what she's given. She's doing her best. It's, it's no kind of a role. I agree. I think she's charming enough in it, but 
this just isn't that <laughs> Bruce Dern's ad-libbing, Michael Parry's stone face, and Adam Ann's <laughs> shortness. It's just, she didn't stand a chance. It's just sort of like, but hey, it was a payday. Yeah, absolutely. No. Um, Bruce Dern's ad-libbing, I... <laughs> I sort of wrote some of these down because some of this dialogue is uh, is astonishing. I'm fascinated by the scene where someone asks him uh, whether he can do something and he replies, does Pinocchio have a wooden dick? <laughs> and I don't know, Bruce. <laughs> I can't really say. I wasn't the one who went into the Disney store and looked and looked down <laughs> Pinocchio's shorts, so it wasn't something I did. You know? Even I know the Del Toro version does not answer this question, which I thought was a <laughs> terrible letdown after the shape of water. <laughs> next, yeah. <laughs> next time we see Guillermo del Toro, we'll ask him. By the way, when you were making Pinocchio, what was the appendages like? <laughs> <laughs> These are important questions. Bruce Dern wants to know. Um, not that he'll remember. But <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, some, it's like the opening monologue as well. Even then, you kind of got the impression that he's 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 got the words in front of him and he's kind of reading them. And he gets a bit bored about halfway through. Cause, uh, and it ends with him just going, oh, things are pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's so he's gone through. Well, seventy-five years ago, the world went, and you're getting all these details and facts, and all of a sudden, yeah, we're pretty fucked. And it's like, <laughs> well, that turned quickly. <laughs> so it's like, and it was that hippie round the fireplace, and it turned it that from being like a, a good example of that. I always give is David Lynch's you when you've got the narrator at the beginning giving all the details about what's going on, and it is quite dry, the way it's mm. delivered. And that kind of, that was the way it was done. I say that's the one I always remember watching a lot as a kid, but I'm sure there's other better examples. And then this one, it was just kind of like, yeah, we're going to take that, and then we're going to turn right on it. And it's sort of like, where are we going now? I don't know what is happening here. So like, is this serious? Is it a comedy? I, I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the tone is very strange in it. And I think that opening monologue gave me a bit of sort of optimism that it was going to turn into a more sort of John Carpenter, George A. Romero kind of subversive B-movie. That's the kind of touch they would have included. But it isn't really that. And it, it does have this very strange tone, I find, that... Mm. There's a lot of broad laughs in it and a lot of sexual threat, which is an odd oh, mix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of it's, it's a very rapey movie. Mm. It's, um, can, can we use that as a descriptor? It's rapey. I <laughs> so... think, it, as, as glib as it sounds, people are fine with that for some reason. I've always yeah. found it a bit weird. But yeah, Nancy Parsons is literally playing a character who is just called Rape Victim. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds about so I'm laughing and it's yeah, well, yes, matter, but you know it, it's, it's, it's one of those things isn't it, it maybe I've become desensitised to it in Japanese cinema because it happens a lot in Japanese cinema especially in the 70s um, it's, it's one of those things where I it, 
I don't have a red line, you know. I I don't have many red lines, I guess, but it all depends on where my expectations are set. You know, I've recently been to see the new Brandon Cronenberg film. I liked it a lot. I found it very funny. But I think if I was watching some of those scenes just sort of jumping unbidden into the middle of a Nancy Myers movie, they'd be a bit disconcerting, really. I'd find them a bit distasteful. No, and I can get the purpose of it here is to show that lawlessness of of the world that we are now entering into. Because this is quite early on as well. I mean, this is, we get to know the village, the little town where they've got the water. Mm. Um, But, you know, they're off the map. And then all of a sudden the bad guys turn up and that's where it was. So it's kind of like the lawlessness of that. This could have very easily, much like any samurai movie or Chambara movie, it could have been a Western. Quite, yes. I suppose it was. I mean, you know, you got the Magnificent Seven, mm. but this could have been an adaptation of that story done on a budget for a Western. And so you can see why people like Bruce Dern were, were brought into it, and they probably were sold on it like that. So, yeah. like, right, is this film? It says it's post apocalyptic, but consider it like a Western. Yes, yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. I'll have a bit of that for me, please. So, yeah, it's, uh, definitely an odd tone because it doesn't quite know what it's going for mm. and that's what makes it even more surprising when you learn who the director was lee katzen who directed <laughs> actually he directed at least one episode of every single american television show of the 60s and 70s didn't he but he was also a big steve mcqueen guy because he right. directed le mans as well yeah and hence why the picture of Steve McQueen halfway through this movie, is this your husband? No, it's Steve McQueen. I mean, sorry, you can't you can't be asking people that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I think the Western uh, illusion mm. you make is a good one. I think the one thing that I, I missed, that I, the one lesson that I, as a big Western fan, uh, wished that they'd kept is that unlike a classic western it never seems to take very long to get anywhere in this film you've got this supposedly ruined post-apocalyptic society and everywhere's seems to be quite a short hop from each other it's not a post-apocalyptic film like say to take an example that I'm sure was on Katzin's mind, the Mad Max films, mm-hmm. yeah. where you often get a sense that Max is having to travel astonishing distances to find even the slightest hint of civilization. But here they just sort of hop from town to town, really. Yes, no, absolutely. Everything's just a couple of miles away. Mm. That Even though they're kind of cut off from everybody, they're not really. It's just kind of yeah. around the corner. And so like, oh, you see that mountain over there just on the other side of that? It's fine. But they won't find us here because we're on the other side of that mountain. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, no. But yeah, nothing ever takes on. And the way they differentiate, oh, it took a long time because look, now it's dark. It's like, yes. That, that's like half a day. It was blatantly the mid-afternoon before you left. <laughs> Completely. Kind of it was one of those. But yeah, and petrol never seems to be a problem either. It, no, that's very true. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose that's one of the things about 80s post-apocalyptic movies that you always have to take with a pinch of salt. It's like, it doesn't really seem to uh, 
to hurt petrol consumption, the nuclear destruction of the world. It seems <laughs> you to... can take my food, you can take my water, <laughs> but do not take my motor vehicle. Yes. Uh, yeah, Americans and their cars. And, you know, that's that's kind of lovely because it's there aren't many post-apocalyptic films that are, you would call realistic and the ones that are, are massively depressing. You know, no one is going into this film expecting something like Peter Watkins' The War Game or mm. Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It's nice that it has these little bits of shorthand in where it's like, I can imagine, you know, the people of a future Earth being oppressed by roving Mansonoid cults, but let them have cars, for God's sake. <laughs> let them have some pleasure. And let the cult, cult followers wear white in a desert scenario and never have a spot of dirt on them until they get shot, of course. <laughs> but honestly, it, it's kind of—it was an advert for Daz Automatic um, <laughs> petrol consumption. Um, it, it was, and as I say, none of them looked like they were going hungry either. Let's mm. put it that there was quite a few people on there who definitely weren't going hungry. Well, I guess it's like since it is kind of a western, they're all just sharing beans. Yeah, albeit a good bean-based diet. Oh, and now we're on to Blazing Saddles. <laughs> I also think one of the fun fantasies of these kind of movies is, a, a, which becomes, you know, the whole text in something like Ready Player One, is mm. the, the fantasy that your fairly basic cultural knowledge is going to be the key to restoring humanity. Like there's a great example of this later on where I think it is Michael Parry, isn't it, who's who's uh, dancing with the female lead and he goes, in the old days they used to call this dancing. Well <laughs> after fashion, yeah I guess. <laughs> You might call it dancing. <laughs> the judges on Strictly are, are like, no, yes. no, Michael, no. It, no. There's no Tina Sparkle. Tina Sparkle. Oh, I love Strictly Boring. There you go. There's an insight. There, there's, there's a scoop for you. Trash King loves Strictly Boring. Um, yeah, but it, it, but it's odd what people know and what people don't know. As yeah. well, because as you say, like Steve McQueen, if you're going to know pop culture, he would have been kind of like one of the. But then again, I don't suppose there would have been many copies of Bullet hanging around. Um, probably, probably a few copies of Le Man. I think <laughs> the director would have made sure that that one survived. Yeah. So, oh, did, did oh look, there's a copy of Savages from 1974. Did, oh, did you not see that? Oh, oh, that's a good film. We don't, so. we don't have the Dirty Dozen, but weirdly, we do have the two have the sequels. sequels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I direct them? Oh, sorry, I remember now. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's another thing about Dirty Dozen. I actually saw the sequels before I saw the original. My stepdad oh, right. was a massive loved those kind of films and things like that. So I got. To, so in the video boom, it's kind of like, right, I want to watch The Dirty Dozen. He's like, this isn't The Dirty Dozen. But this is also the man that got me into kung fu movies by getting me a Bruce Loitation film, not realising that Bruce Lai and Bruce Lee were two different people. 
Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, you know what, I'm not... He, he was the kind of person when they had... Uh, remember when Pacific Rim came out and you kind of went and they had this sci-fi original Atlantic Rim? He yes. would have been the person fooled by it. You know, it's kind of like one of those, oh, this is only just out in the cinema. Yeah, it's, that's who they were aiming at. He's the person who Asylum pitches dream of like having as their customer. Yeah, and then you get people like me who just love them anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind yeah. of like, Johnny, don't go on then. It's funny though, isn't it? There is a time when you don't care about that. Like I remember looking back at as a kid, I just accepted that there were two cartoons called Ghostbusters and one of them had a gorilla in for some reason. And that's just how it is. I... That was just it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, or groups would have, uh, pop artists would have three versions of the same song in the charts at the same time. And it was just like, yeah, just pick which one you liked. Well, Adamant sort of went through a sort of strange version of that himself because the first version of Adam and the Ants, all of the musicians left to form Bow Wow Wow. Yes. So that that was kind of his version of that, wasn't it? The yeah. Bow Wow Wow were kind of like the real Ghostbusters equivalent of Adam and the Ants. <laughs> Looking over at their big screen adaptation. <laughs> yeah. the King of the World Frontier. It's like, mm. oh, Bow Wow Wow were great though. Oh yeah, I do like Bow Wow Wow. I... Yeah, no, absolutely. Um so there was another comparison I had, and it's just flipped out my head. Put a pin in that one. I'll come back to it later. Gotcha. Guaranteed. Halfway through saying something else, I'll remember. I like, <laughs> oh, no, that's pertinent, but no, no, it's gone. It's gone. But yeah, um, to, to, to fish back actually a bit, you did mention David Lynch's June, uh, and the ending is extremely similar to that film, I think. I guess oh, maybe I'm seeing it more because I know it's the, the divisive bit of June that he added to Frank Herbert's novel with the, the rain yeah. suddenly breaking. Yeah, no, and, and I can see that. And that is pretty much, I mean, there was a whole bunch of those films as well. That There was, um, what's it called? The Eliminators 3000, an Italian post-apocalyptic movie, which, spoiler, does exactly the same thing. But that was very much a trope. If right. you didn't have rain throughout the film and the whole purpose was water, it it was going to rain at the end. Gotcha. Yeah. That was just a trope. That was just kind of like something came through. But yeah, no, very much sort of like the, the seas of Arrakis will now be flooded. It peed a lot of people off. Definitely it did. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. And then again, we're talking about a film there where they had a kid's toy line. I remember a friend of mine having Sting's character and Baron <laughs> Harkonnen as toys. <laughs> in primary school and it was like looking back on it i mean at the time it was like oh these are cool hey look he's got a knife uh, but looking back on it and knowing those characters as well as i do now it's like hmm didn't really think about that one did you obviously i believe that every david lynch movie should have a tie-in kids toy range and i think the <laughs> Yeah, the the face swapping Lorman figure in Land Empire is it's Blue Velvet. You got Frank with with additional masks, the mask playset for kids. Let me smell it. 
I can just imagine buying my son this. So like, here's a go on beef rack. Actually, there was a photo of my son as a kid. He got, um, this is the beginning of the pandemic, and I managed to get some masks for like painting and things like that. <laughs> and put one on his face like that, and, it, and I think I posted it on, on Twitter or something, just going, oh my God, my son is watching uh, his uh, channel and his uh, In uh, the blue velvet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A kid's play set of pro... Oh, I love that. By the gang! <laughs> I mean, it's it's only a hair away from some of the toys that were released yeah. back then. I've noticed that in recent years, one of those big kind of Gen X slash elder millennial nostalgia touchstones has been looking back and thinking, isn't it a bit fucked up that there was a kid's toy range based on the Terminator? Isn't that a bit weird? Um, but then again, it's no worse than today. I mean, going into uh, Smith's Toys the other day with my son after his swimming lesson, and they had Predator toys on the shelves. <laughs> yeah. And aliens. And it's just kind of like, and he just kind of, he, he's like, Dad, is that a Predator? And I was like, yes, and it is. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't tell the teachers. or <laughs> But to him, it's just like an alien creature. I mean, obviously, he's never seen the films, even though mm. I maybe have seen by <laughs> no, no. um but yeah it, it's so as i say i don't think it it's just weird nowadays as compared to them where everything was seen after star wars and star wars was the one that caught everybody by surprise that mm. nobody knew it was sort of like there's a sci-fi film coming out should we make toys yes i mean they made some um have you ever seen megaforce with oh now i'm gonna have to think it was a joint production of golden harvest in hong kong and oh what it's amazing 1982 film starring barry bostwick yeah michael beck Mm. it's the one with the flying motorbike i am absolutely Love it. It's right. absolutely. It, it's a film that it doesn't really have a. But you get to the end and go, well, what was the point of that? What was the story there? I don't know. I have no clue what was going on. Why were they fighting? <laughs> yeah, uh, because they can. <laughs> but it's it's directed by Hal Needham, who yes. Is like if you want loads of vehicular stunts in your movie, he was mm-hmm. the guy to get. Yeah, Cannibal Run, Smokey the Bandit, all those films, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 No. So it, it was, and it was very much that. But they made a toy line for it, and the film bombed something <laughs> chronic. It, and, and so nobody now, if you go searching for Megaforce toys, you get Power Rangers. Yeah. Power Rangers Megaforce. It's like. Uh... I, I had a similar feeling recently when, like, well, I say recently, about sort of six years ago, when I walked into HMV and there was just a wall of unsold Funko Pops for the movie Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a mausoleum. Edge your bets. Edge your bets. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, well, Funko are in all sorts of problems at the moment, aren't they? They're, they're they had kind of, to, uh, yeah, they had to go all Atari's ET, didn't they? On yeah, they the, did. Yeah. 
It was cheaper to bury them than to sell them. I don't find Funko Pops as annoying as some people I know do, but I do find it a bit fishy the way that they're always used to kind of launder the idea of blockbusters as being cult movies that before they come out there's the whole range of all the characters it's like look you can see your favorite character from this upcoming film and it's like well sometimes that works and sometimes you end up with a wall full of the john goodman voiced alien from valerian in the city of a thousand planets <laughs> See, by that now, probably be a collector's item in 20 years, which is when people said about Jar Jar Binks. And I know, I was working in the industry at that point, and it was kind of like, no, nobody's going to like this character 20, 30, 50 years from now. <laughs> I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I, I don't know what kids want like anymore. No, I, I do not think Jar Jar has had the reassessment uh, that nobody was predicting for him. Yeah, George Lucas is incredibly racist, who knew? <laughs> but yeah, um, I I think that the fact that we are now talking about Funko Pops is maybe proof that we have exhausted World Gone Wild <laughs> as a topic of well, conversation. Well, there, there is one other thing, and round because I know you mentioned the budget earlier, this only made $328,000. <laughs> On a four million budget with that cast, you would have thought a couple of more people would have turned up. Uh, yes. But no, no, it was a massive, massive flop. And hence why I probably don't see it anywhere anymore. I know MGM have the right, uh, made it. Um, no, it was Apollo Films, wasn't it? And then it was uh, distributed by MGM, which is now owned by Amazon. So I still hope that one day it kind of turns up and I can replace my German imported DVD. Yes, I own this film. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, no, it is. It, it's, I, I call it a five-star trashic. <laughs> it, it is a trashic of, of the true, in the true term. It's a complete car crash of a movie. And it is wonderful, and I love it, but I couldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> it's, it's one of the. I love it. I'll watch it. It's, it's fine for me. It's a bit like what um, was it? Roger Furman, former head of the BBFC, said about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, oh, it's fine for us intellectuals, but can you imagine a, car, a factory worker from Leeds watching this? It's yes. Like... Yeah. Uh, I cannot imagine a factory worker from Leeds watching World Gone Wild. Uh... <laughs> As you said, it's the sort of film that you can't recommend to anyone unless someone you know is mm. an idiot who is making a podcast about pop stars trying to act, in which case, thank you very much for tipping me off. <laughs> no, and I apologise for making you watch it. <laughs> so, but it's wonderful. It's five stars. Don't listen to anything I'm saying. But it isn't. But it is. But it is. Well... If you enjoyed that, we're, we're reviewing some more absolute rubbish uh, on our Patreon very soon. Uh, Mark Cunliffe as revenge for me making him watch uh, You and I, the tattoo movie, has uh, challenged me to watch The Governors, a British football hooligan movie starring a bloke from Rizzle Kicks. Uh, mm -hmm. That will be released at the start of next month, uh, as well as the usual two free episodes. Uh, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll also get our other hugely enjoyable uh, movie and TV miscellany podcast last night, which we've both been on now, haven't we? Yes, we have. Yeah. We're not together. 
Not I together. We've got we've got a, a, a director's uncut coming up. I think is it you doing it, Suki, uh, Shinya Sugimoto? Oh, we are. Yes, we are both on that one. Yeah, um, I think 16. that should that should be out. Yeah, uh, a, a couple of maybe a couple of weeks after this comes out. Um, but yes, our paths occasionally cross. I think we were both on one of the Katano episodes. Yes, we were the uh, yeah. uh, Kikajiro. Kikajiro and, and um, uh, Hanabi. Fireworks. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, always uh, fun to catch up with you again, Ben. And uh, like I say, we will be back together on the uh, Tsukamoto episode of Directors Uncut very soon. You can follow the Geek Show on social media, on what's left of Twitter at this point, who knows, uh, as well as Instagram and Facebook. But until next time, that's been your lot from Popscreen. I've been Graham. Uh, I'm Ben, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. No problem. Just got that under the wire before your cat starts pestering you there, I think. Yeah.